I don't know how the field will move, uh, but I know what my particular stance on it is. The hard problem is a mistake. Um, it's a very re it's easy to see how the mistake got made, but it's a mistake. There is no real hard problem. Uh, this this is the only ra the only possible rational logical answer. Like if you believe in logic, if you the the the, the whole thing depends on these two basic principles. One, everything you think you know about yourself derives from information in the brain. And the other is that the information in the brain is never really perfectly accurate. Like those are the two premises. From there, everything else flows. Uh, I think um, the hard problem is like when uh, at one point, of course, people thought that um, white was pure you know, and colors were contaminated white light. Uh, and that's because the brain represented them that way at a very automatic level. And then those representations get uh, sent to higher cognition and then it informs our beliefs and our claims. And so we're all absolutely certain of it. Um, but then Newton comes along and figures out actually white light is something totally different. It's a mixture of all these different wavelengths. And uh, what we thought was true isn't. And the reason why we think this is because the brain built a simplified model and we're a little bit captive to that model. And so that's exactly what uh, is happening here. The hard problem, qualia, uh, the feel, the experience, experience-ness itself, phenomenal consciousness. These are things that people assume to be true because their higher cognition is accessing a deeper model and the deeper model is giving them this picture. And what I'm saying is, the deeper model is just information. That's all that's in there is just information. And the information's not accurate. The brain's models are never fully accurate. They're always schematic. Uh, and it's describing something else, but it's, des it's describing it in a very useful way, but in a, in a way that's not perfectly uh, technically accurate. So we go around thinking we have these essentially magical or non-physical properties when we don't. Michael Graziano is professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton, and he is the developer of the attention schema theory, a theory of consciousness. Here, we talk about consciousness and consciousness studies in general. We deal with some of the other major theories of consciousness, so global workspace theory, IIT, higher order thought theories. Um, we also talk about some of the philosophical challenges in conceptualizing consciousness. We deal with some related issues of social cognition, attention, and awareness, and we talk about the prospect of machine consciousness. If you like this project and want to support the the, the podcast, please consider subscribing to the YouTube channel. Uh, that really helps out. Here is my conversation with Michael Gaziano. How did you become interested in thinking about consciousness? I think that probably every neuroscientist, every cognitive psychologist has that interest. Uh, probably everyone does, right? But one of the things that, that leads people very early on into science of the brain or the mind is, you know, what is this thing, this, this mind that I experience and what is experience itself? And it's always sort of in the back of people's thoughts. And so at some point, um, uh, I mean, a little bit accidentally at some point, I got into some work on, uh, movement control that reminded me a lot of questions of how the brain controls its own internal processes. 
And uh, it was at that point that I started getting more and more into this other question and realizing, wait, now we're studying, we're, we're studying consciousness now. That's what that is. Uh, so that's that was about 12 years ago, I guess, that we we went in, in that direction. But, you know, that, that interest was always there from the beginning, I think. Are you still thinking about movement and the motor cortex? Uh, I don't work on that now. I mean, I worked on the motor cortex and movement and other issues related to sensory motor integration probably for, well, I mean, for a very long time, for the first chunk of my career, uh, for about 10 years on uh, sensory integration, for about 10 years on movement control, um, but, you know, very nuts and bolts kind of neuroscience. Um, but it's been fun, really, to move into these more uh, cognitive, uh, social and cognitive topics, and, and um, that's been great. It's been lots of fun. So tell us about the the process of coming up with the attention schema theory. Yeah, so like I said, it kind of began with movement control, right? Uh, I so there were sort of a lot of sources to it that came together, <laughs> roots that grew into one thing. Uh, but what one of the roots was movement control. We were studying movement for many many years, and one of the great principles that's been around for a hundred years, more than a hundred years now, is that to control something, to move an arm, the brain needs a model of the arm, right? And so we have this thing that the brain constructs, it's called the body schema, which is a kind of simplified schematic uh, model, a simulation, if you will, of the body. And the brain uses it to keep track and to make predictions uh, about what your body's doing, what it's about to do, what it can and can't do. Uh, and we realized that... Um, I mean, that's, that's a fundamental of what's called control theory or control engineering. And we realized that for the brain to control its own processes, we were thinking about attention. So attention is one of the most fundamental things brains have, uh, the ability to focus resources on a small range of items and then move that focus around, not just through space, but also move it to abstract thoughts and move it to memories of yesterday and then move it back into the real world. So the brain is always moving that focus of attention around. And we began to think of it like an arm. Like it, how, how does the brain move that focus around? Well, it needs a, a, a simulation or a model of, of that focus. What does that mean for a brain to essentially simulate that part of itself? Uh, and we started realizing, wait, we're talking about a self-model. We're talking about uh, something that's beginning to sound more and more like... Um, you know, awareness, what people refer to as subjective awareness. And so that's, that's really where that, that came from initially. That was a really grew out of the motor, motor control uh, literature. So just like the body schema, the attention schema doesn't need to be a detailed model. It just needs to be an approximation. That's right. That's right. So we all have this intuition. We're all at a gut level. We're certain that we have a thing in us that can mentally seize hold of items and when we do that, uh, we have uh, a deep understanding of those items. Vividly, we grasp them. We have vivid experience. And it allows us to make decisions and it allows us to remember, right? That's what we self-describe as having. And that's a, essentially a very fuzzy, high-level schematic description of what attention actually is. That's a brain um, uh, deploying and focusing its resources to deeply process a small number of things at the expense of other things uh, for more efficiency. 
And so that's really where we got into this concept of there's a there's a, a model of attention or a schematic model of attention, which is very useful for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and it, yeah, and it, it leads to this um, the state of anyway that that that's where that that's where that all came from. Yeah, great. So just terminology wise, uh, attention here refers to a mechanistic process, and then awareness is is control at that schematic level. Right. So attention, of course, is a very difficult term because it gets used colloquially, uh, and then it gets used by a cognitive psychologist, uh, and then it gets used by neuroscientists, and everyone uses it in slightly different ways. Uh, right. So it's very tricky. And by attention, what I really mean is uh, neurons in your brain process stuff. They process information. Uh, and neurons, by virtue of how they connect to each other, will enhance some signals passing through the system and inhibit other signals. And so when you look out at the world, for example, um, there's certain things that jump out to you and certain things that get suppressed into the background. And that's because your neurons are uh, working together to enhance some signals so you process them deeply uh, so you can react to them, so you can remember them uh, for later, uh, or so that you can make um, intelligent decisions about them and other things out there in the world are being suppressed. So that's attention. It's a really a neural mechanism. Uh, but of course, we as humans, we don't know about that. We don't, you know, unless you study it uh, in school, you don't go around saying, oh, my neurons are colluding to enhance this signal. Uh, instead, what we have is a kind of self-simplified self-model. And we say, oh, I, uh, I have a mind that is right now aware of this and less aware of that. I'm experiencing this vividly, and I'm experiencing that only a little bit, and I, I there's probably other things I'm not experiencing at all, right? That's our story we tell ourselves or at a, a gut level, the representation that we build to uh, understand that process of attention. And and cognitive psychologists understand attention differently? Uh, I, I think probably if you look in psychology, the definitions tend to surround behavior. Like attention means you're faster to react to something. Um, attention means you're um, oh, in reacting to one thing over here, you react less to something over there, right? So there's like a behavioral definition. There's a neuroscience definition in terms of signals passing through neural networks. And then there's a colloquial definition, which usually means the thing in front of my eyes right now. Right. Just different levels of description. They're all useful at their levels. Yeah. Yeah. So then you're proposing a totally naturalist, mechanistic uh, account of consciousness that eliminates some of the mystery that's been associated around it. Yeah, I mean, what, what I'm proposing is that we self-describe as being conscious. We build a, a representation of ourselves. I mean, every, everything we know about the world and ourselves, everything, no matter how basic and obvious and certain it is, all derives from information, bundles of information in the brain, right? And so what this says is the brain builds among other chunks of information. It builds a, a bundle that of information that represents it, this attention process, right? So what I'm saying is we, we attribute consciousness to ourselves and we attribute it to other people because it's useful to do so. Right. So so that that's an important part of this, right? The attribution of consciousness to others. 
Um, so this would tell us a lot about social cognition as well. That's right. So um, when I interact with you, uh, and you know, right now it's a very simplified environment, and we're just looking at each other, and that's it. But let's say we're in a more complicated world, and there's things going on, and other people, and and I'm interacting with you, and I need to predict your behavior. And to some extent, social interaction is all about prediction, behavioral prediction. Uh, how do I predict what you're about to do? How do I predict what I'm about to do? And how do I figure out the dance between those two and then decide what to do next, right? So um, I need to know at some level, what are the factors that drive your behavior? Uh, and it turns out, uh, maybe this is obvious, but the factor that most drives your behavior is what you're paying attention to. Because if you're not paying attention to the donuts, you're not going to reach for them. And if you're you're not paying attention to the, I don't know, the, the bee flying at you, you're probably not going to duck. Uh, and if you are paying attention to this, then I know you might react to it or you might file it in your head for later. Um, but I could start to make predictions. Like that's the baseline that I need to know is what you're paying attention to, what attention means in terms of how it influences you, right? Uh, but the, the the truth is, again, I don't look at you, I don't intuitively look at you and say, ah, his brain is taking in signals and his neurons are um, interacting. And no, what happens is I come up with a much simpler sketch. And in that simple sketch, I say, ah, he's aware of this. He's not aware of that. He's very aware of this, but he's only a little aware of that, right? So in trying to understand your state of attention, you know, me mechanistic attention, what I do is build this schematic construct of awareness or, or your your um, state of consciousness, what you're conscious of, what you're experiencing. And I attribute that to you. And that's at the heart of uh, theory of mind, social cognition, and social interaction. Right. I imagine it provides an advantage in predicting others' behaviors, um, having a schema versus no. That's right. That's right. So the whole point here is that there are reasons there are there there's an adaptive value, like an evolutionary adaptive value for us to attribute consciousness to each other and to ourselves, to come up with a construct and then attribute it to each other. This is very useful. There's a reason why we would have evolved those mechanisms. Uh and um and those reasons have nothing to do with there being actual magic consciousness inside our heads. Like, we don't need that. We don't need that as part of the explanation. Is that a novel hypothesis? I know you have a paper with that title. Um, but the, the idea of consciousness, consciousness being being adaptive and having that adaptive evolutionary value, whereas sometimes an evolutionary counts as unassumed. Yeah. I think a lot of people have speculated, like, why is there consciousness? Um I think there's different schools of thought. Uh, there are some people who would say it has no particular uh, adaptive value. It, it's just there. Uh, that probably goes along with people who would say everything has it. You know, there's this notion of panpsychism, which I think is kind of, well, it's not science. It's like very silly, but very well, surprisingly widespread, at least among some, some groups of people, that everything... You know, the rocks and the trees and the electrons all are conscious, and therefore it's outside of biological evolution, and you don't need to worry about what its useful function is. It's just there, right? Um, then there's people who say, no, it's a part of um, evolution. It's a it's a brain function. 
And if it's part of the brain and the brain evolved, how did it evolve? Right. And now you have people guessing. Some people say, well, maybe it's what's called a spandrel. That is, you know, it uh, doesn't serve a purpose. It's sort of an accidental byproduct of evolution, uh, an epiphenomenon. Um, but um, what we think is very just so there, there are speculations about what purpose it might serve, what value it might have. I think what we're saying is different. It is a novel um, because the most, first of all, the, 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 uh, what we noticed when you look at people, when you look at how they use the concept of consciousness, you just observe, like, never mind the philosophy, never mind sitting in your armchair with your feet up thinking about things. Just go out into the world and observe how people use this concept. What they're doing is they live in a sea of perceived consciousness, right? My friend is conscious of this and that, and my um, mother is conscious, and my pet is conscious, and some people, their plants are conscious, or whatever it is, you know, uh, and that informs their social interaction. And it, um, and if something isn't conscious, you know, they're not very interested in it. They don't they don't mind cutting up the wood on the wood pile because it doesn't have a mind, uh, and um, and so. It plays this enormous uh, central role in social interaction. Uh, so um, just interacting with other agents, other complex agents. And so as soon as you see that, then you begin to realize, wait, it can't be an epiphenomenon. It plays this gigantic consequential role in everything we do socially. And so, of course, it had to have somehow been shaped by evolution. Uh, and it becomes kind of more obvious what we're doing is building models of each other and models of ourselves. Right, right. And, and the evolutionary story might be unclear and complicated, as it always is, but you can still hypothesize about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so on that point about uh, the, the the benefit of having a schema for yourself and others, does this bring up questions about higher levels of causality? So does the does the schema play some causal role in, in the behaviors that the actor exhibits? Yes, it does. Uh, and so where do we have evidence? When you uh, uh, build a schema for yourself, so modeling your own attention states, or when you're building the schema for other people, modeling other people's attention states. So you look at for yourself, we now know people do build models of their own attention. Uh, so there's certain aspects, sort of the foundational pieces of the theory that are getting more and more cemented in the um, uh, experimental literature, right? So people do build models of their own, of their own intention, uh, and those models seem to be terribly useful for um, guiding your own intention. So if you don't know that your attention is being distracted over here, it's really hard to stop it from being distracted, right? And there's studies that that show that that if you have a distractor but you're not even aware of it. Like it hasn't risen to consciousness, but it's still siphoning off some of your attention. It's very hard to control that, att that um, attention. If uh, So you have to have this uh, model of it. You have to have something in your brain that's, that knows, ooh, my attention's being pulled over here. Uh, now I know to pull it back this way, just to give you an example, right? So we know it's of crucial importance in controlling your own attention, just like knowing where your arm is uh, uh, being able to model your arm is crucial in being able to control the movement of your arm. So being able to control your attention, you need to, you need to know what it's doing. 
right? You need to have that self model. Uh, so I think without it, we'd be pretty crippled. Um, and, and we also know that um, socially, uh, there's much more literature socially that we build models of other people's attention uh, without which we don't have good theory of mind. And so it's really hard for people to in interact with each other in any kind of useful way to have any kind of uh, empathy or social cognition or predict their behavior or anything without first having a good grasp of what that person is aware of. Like to have a model to say that person's conscious of this and not that, that person's experiencing things in this way and that way, um, that has that has to be there. Otherwise, social cognition breaks down. So we know that it has a huge impact on people's behavior, uh, both how they control their own attention states and how they um, understand and therefore interact with other people. So it, it the utility is without question. Um, yeah. Right, right. And just as an aside, is there work on this being localized in certain networks of the brain? So I've read some stuff about uh, the relevance of the temporal parietal junction. Right. I think that's, you know, I have my guesses. Uh, I think there there's a fair amount of evidence pointing to certain networks in the brain uh, that are computing these kinds of things. Um, I mean, there's a social cognition network that emphasizes building constructs like mind and consciousness and awareness. And if those, if you can, if magically by accident, those networks were suddenly pulled out of your brain or, or they ceased functioning, you wouldn't even know what consciousness is anymore. And then it'd be really hard to have this conversation because that's the part of your brain computing anything to do with that. Right. And so, um, uh, our claims of having consciousness, our belief, our certainty that we have, it has to depend in some way on those networks. Um, it would be just like uh, there are people whose color um, systems fail, you know, systematically the color processing and their visual systems, those networks die. And then those people don't even know what color is anymore. Like they can't process it. They can't remember it. They can't dream it. They can't really talk about it intelligently. They just have some words that they don't quite grasp what those words mean anymore. So, Yeah. So yes, there are there are networks in the brain that we're pretty sure we can point to that are probably important to this, but there's a huge amount of work still uh, to be done on on that end. All right. So the the million dollar question: um, How does attention schema theory explain subjective phenomenal experience about about why we put so much emphasis on on quali on felt experience? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, it's a theory for why you believe that you have qualia. It's not a theory for how you get qualia. Right. So let me explain. Uh, and this is an example that I, that, um, that I s s sometimes use. Um, <laughs> so I, I had a friend, he was a, um, uh, a psychiatrist and he had a, a, a patient and the, and he told me about, it. and the patient was delusional. He thought he had a squirrel in his head. And um, it's a weird delusion, but this happens. People have odd ideas, but he's very fixed on this idea that there's a squirrel in his head instead of a brain, okay? And you try to talk to him and you say, well, that doesn't sound too likely. And he says, well, sorry, it's true. And you say, well, that's not very rational or logical. And he says, true, but not everything's rational and logical. And then you could say, well, yeah, but we looked in your head and there's no squirrel in there. And yeah, well, it's invisible. It's like, it's intangible, but it's there. And then uh, you can say, well, I think what's happening is 
your brain has constructed a self-model bundle of information that describes that state. And you are captive to that information because everything you think that's true about yourself derives from information in your head. So you're, you're captive to that. And your brain has built this at this very fundamental automatic level, this model of squirrel in your head. And now your the rest of your brain, your higher cognition and so on is uh, captive to that information. And that's why you're absolutely sure that you have that squirrel. And the guy says, yeah, sure, yada, yada, information, blah, blah, blah. You still haven't explained how the squirrel got in my head, right? And you can go in loops and loops and loops and never solve anything because the guy cannot grasp this fundamental truth that everything he th thinks he knows derives from information in the brain. And the information in the brain is not necessarily accurate. And those are the crucial points. And so when you ask, when people ask, how do we get the feeling, the subjective feel, the qualia, uh, the answer that AST provides is you think you have a feeling, you think you have qualia for the same reason you think anything. It's because of information in your brain. And that information is not generally accurate. It's schematic. It's not accurate. Right? So it's explaining why you think you have magic in your head. But it's saying you don't. It's saying what you really have is this other thing, this much more mechanistic process. But in trying to keep track of that, the brain has built a schematic model of it, and the schematic model depicts something that's a bit magical, and then your higher cognition gets hold of that model, and therefore all your beliefs and your certainty center around this sort of magical stuff in your head, the qualia and the feeling and the experience. That's the throughput, right? That's what's being explained here. Or as, as um, some people would put it, I guess Chalmers would put it, um, he calls it the meta problem. That is, um, the hard problem is the qualia problem. The meta problem is why do people even think they have a hard problem to begin with? That's what this theory uh, answers. Do, do you see that as an important turn in philosophy, like shifting from the hard problem to the to the meta problem? Um, I, I know parts of philosophy can can be a mess, but do you, do you see that as a as an important shift, or are they sort of parallel running questions? Yeah, I mean, sure, philosophy is super interesting. There's corners of it that are uh, a mess, of course, uh, um, but there's corners of it that have been re really interesting. Uh, I don't know how the field will move. Uh, but I know what my particular stance on it is. The hard problem is a mistake. Um, it's a very, re it's easy to see how the mistake got made, but it's a mistake. There is no real hard problem. Uh, this, this is the only, ra the only possible rational logical answer. Like if you believe in logic, if you, the, 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 the whole thing depends on these two basic principles. One, Everything you think you know about yourself derives from information in the brain. And the other is that the information in the brain is never really perfectly accurate. Like those are the two premises. From there, everything else flows. Uh, I think um, the hard problem is like when uh, at one point, of course, people thought that um, white was pure you know, and colors were contaminated white light. Uh, and that's because the brain represented them that way at a very automatic level. And then those representations get 
a sense to higher cognition and then it informs our beliefs and our claims and so we're all absolutely certain of it um but then newton comes along and figures out actually white light is something totally different it's a mixture of all these different wavelengths and uh what we thought was true isn't and the reason why we think this is because the brain built a simplified model and we're a little bit captive to that model and so that's exactly what uh is happening here the hard problem qualia of the feel the experience experienceness itself phenomenal consciousness these are things that people assume to be true because their higher cognition is accessing a deeper model and the deeper model is giving them this picture and what i'm saying is the deeper model is just information that's all that's in there is just information and the information is not accurate the brain's models are never fully accurate they're always schematic uh, and it's describing something else but it's just describing it in a very useful way, but in a, in a way that's not perfectly uh, technically accurate. So we go around thinking we have these essentially magical or non-physical properties when we don't. So that's the explanation. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it might partly be why why panpsychism has had this resurgence in or resurgence in philosophy lately, where, where I think their point is not that, that there isn't yet a solution to the heart problem, but is that they can't imagine a solution to the heart problem. Right? You can't imagine a, a right. natural mechanistic solution to the heart problem. And then unless you buy into some of Panzakis' premises, um, maybe that might point to why the whole thing is is ill-posed in the first place. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think one of the reasons why panpsychism has surged lately is because of a particular theory, the integrated information theory. Uh, so this is a theory that says if you have information in a system and uh, the information is uh, of the bits of information relate to each other in a specific way according to a very complicated uh, formula and math that is at this point not fully understood, uh, uh, then it produces um, the feeling of consciousness. Uh, and to my mind, it belongs to this general category of magic because let's say it does produce the feeling. Uh, you still have not explained how the feeling then makes us, you know, affects our speech machinery so that we say we have it, right? It's not, it does, actually doesn't explain the only objective phenomena that we know about it, which is that people, you know, it's it, it affects our thought. Be, 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 we claim to have consciousness. We say we have consciousness. We, um, we have these beliefs about ourselves. So whatever it is, it's affecting our speech machinery. Uh, but if you have a theory that says a magic essence emerges, um, you haven't explained how the magic essence then comes back again and tweaks the individual neurons to make the thoughts and the speech. Anyway, so there's IIT, uh, Integrated Information Theory. And what it says basically is anything with information in it has at least a little teeny bit of the consciousness stuff. And as the information gets more complex and more integrated, the consciousness stuff gets bigger and bigger. And so m many people who subscribe to that theory, like I said, I don't think it's really a theory, so to speak. It's a it's a guess. Um, but uh, the logical conclusion of that theory is, therefore, everything has at least some degree of consciousness. And as that is swept through and people have sort of um, thought, you know, glommed onto that, I, I think pe pe people, people there's a very strong desire to uh, maintain a sense of uh, magic, mystery, and 
non-physicality to the universe, you know, in a, in, in a world where science is threatening a lot of that, what people hold dear. And so IIT has become kind of a bandwagon for that. And people jump on it and like, yes, this is, and it's mathematical too. And it's like physics. And so it must be right. And then uh, this expands and expands. And then people start to think about it deeply and realize, oh, that must mean panpsychism because now, you know, electrons and potatoes and planets, they all have some information in them. And, and I think that's partly why, uh, maybe the main reason for that big resurgence in um, in panpsychism right now. Yeah, the the threshold thing in AIT seems really difficult to get your mind around. I think just the idea that at some level of complexity, uh, really it's not even complexity, like the math is difficult to understand, but but at some level, something is more integrated and, and, and therefore more conscious or less conscious, and then that somehow has relevance for, for attention mechanisms and things that that we do have a good understanding of. So it, it gets a bit confusing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, confusing is a is one way of putting it. I, I'm obviously not a fan of that theory. Uh but I think it's I think it I don't mean to isolate that one theory, but I think it belongs to a general category. Maybe some of the flaws become more obvious in that theory because it tries to be as systematic as possible. And so, so you start to see where the flaws lie. Uh, but almost every theory of consciousness that has been posed to date is a still essentially a magical theory because it essentially says, here's a condition. When that condition is met, then a fundamentally non-physical essence of feeling emerges. And as soon as you say that, you're stuck. As soon as you say that, you're stuck. There's no, no, no theory anymore. Yeah, because it doesn't it doesn't explain anything. That's right. And it seems like the only valid strategy is to give a theory that shows why we might pose the question, but we might be fooling ourselves into 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 thinking it. That's right. That's right. So, um, uh, yes. So that's one reason. That's one reason for thinking that essentially we're, um, you know, yeah, as you say, fooling ourselves into it. But but the 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 other reason is simply that I think this is very hard for people to grasp. The reason why people are so certain they have consciousness is not because they have consciousness. It's because they have information in their brains telling their higher cognition that they have this thing. Um, and that's logically necessarily true. It's true of everything we think we know. Like the, the reason why I think there's a computer in front of me is actually not strictly because there is a computer in front of me. It's because my brain has information in it telling me that it's there like that's the actual reason there's information in the brain telling you that you have this thing that's why we say we have consciousness that's why we say anything at all uh and what once you grasp that then the rest is a little easier to to follow right and and it's great because you don't seem to be an eliminativist about about it either um you're and i know eliminativism is also a complex set of views but but you're not saying that the feeling doesn't exist you're just saying that it's a it's a different mechanism that would we might intuitively grasp, and it it's 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 socially pervasive and and has value. It it does exist, right? So there's value to it. Uh, there is a real thing that exists, um, and then there's a model of the real thing that the brain constructs, and the model is not quite the same as the real thing. And then there's what we think we have, which is based on the model. And the model is the reflection of the real thing. And so there's like this uh, step-by-step, -step, you know, 
uh, like the the whisper game where you know one person whispers and the next person hears it and passes it on. And by the time it comes out the other end, it's a bit different. Uh, I mean, I think that's what's going on, that we have something real, the ability of the brain to focus its resources and deeply process something. That's what we have. That's real. It's mechanistic. It's describable. Then we have the brain's model or description of that. And that model is not perfectly detailed or accurate, and it's a little fuzzy at the edges and schematic. And then we have our co cognition accessing that model and coming up with an even more schematized version of it. And then, and then we have the report that we come, that we talk about. And when that comes out the other end, we're saying, I have this essentially magical feeling and I can't figure out how a magical feeling can be explained scientifically. Um, but if you understand that step-by-step -step process of how you start with something real, it's not like there's nothing there. You're right. It's not a limitivist. There's a real thing there. Uh, but then there's these s s sort of stepwise sequence of processing through the brain that then leads us to believe we have something that's similar to, but a little bit magicalized and fictionalized compared to the real thing that we have. Right. And you do write about how socially pervasive it is in our everyday colloquial folk understanding of the world, the, the idea of the plasma and all that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So that's right. So um, that's another point of interest for me is that, um, you know, it's really easy. I think it's really easy to look at uh, some of these widespread cultural beliefs and scoff at them. And, uh, uh, but actually, I think they have uh, an origin that is actually meaningful. And so, just to give a really, really specific example, one of the things that we studied was this I beams, the belief in, you know, uh, it's very pervasive that people believe in or feel like there's beams coming out of the eyes. Uh, and that's been in culture as far back as people have been writing about anything. Uh, so the ancient Greeks talked about it and so on and so on. And even in modern culture, it's it's uh, embedded in, uh, in, you know, Superman had x-rays that come out of his eyes. And, and we all feel like we can sense someone's gaze on the back of our neck and all this sort of stuff. So we feel like there's power coming out of the eyes. Uh, and what we realized in our, in our experiments is that even people who, who don't believe that, who are like, that's garbage, that's like, I'm, I'm scientific, I don't believe in eye beams, and that's true, there are no actual things coming out of the eye. Um, but when you look at another person looking at something, when you see, you know, John looking at a thing, at a ball, uh, you cannot help encoding John's attentive gaze, his attention, as though it were uh, an invisible thing streaming out of his eyes toward that ball. Like the brain automatically builds that model for you. Uh, and we think it does that because it's quick, it's easy. It's like trying an arrow to help keep track of what people around you are thinking and doing. Uh, so it's part of social cognition. And you, and you see those signals in the brain. You see them in visual areas that light up in specific ways uh, at a very um, subtle level so that um, we don't see it. It's not vivid enough for us to see it but we kind of get the feely impression of uh, something streaming out of the eyes. And everyone has this, whether you're aware of it or not, everyone has this uh, tendency to attribute these in incorrect models to other people to, to better keep track in a simple way of what they're thinking and what they're about to do. Just to backtrack a little, 
Um, so far, we've been talking about human consciousness, but but what about animal consciousness? Uh, so, considering the evolutionary story, uh, what other creatures creatures might have consciousness? What's what's the story there? Yeah, I mean, I've thought a lot about that. Um, so, one of the difficulties. So there are lots of difficulties. It's a very it's a very fraught question, obviously, and there's a lot of controversy in that field. And um, one of the biggest um, traps, I think, in that field that many, many people fall into is to look for animal behavior that's very complicated and to say, aha, look, this animal, like uh, one of the most common or favorite animals to talk about is the bee, the honeybee, which has really, really sophisticated um, uh, information processing and can solve all kinds of cognitive problems. And then to say, therefore, it's conscious or to look at other animals of very complicated behavior or a cognition and say, therefore, they're, therefore they have a subjective experience like we do. Uh, and that's very problematical because um, I, I don't think that follows. And of course, we can build machines now that are rather more sophisticated than a honeybee or most other animals. Uh, but, you know, as to whether they have conscious experience or not, I, I doubt. But the, the point is that complicated information processing does not mean of consciousness, right? So that's the first thing that I would say is let's take that off the table. Um, the second thing I would say is it's very difficult because people tend to think of human-like consciousness. They want to know what animals are human-like. And, and I don't know what the answer to that is. I doubt that dogs have human-like consciousness. They probably have canine consciousness, which is a different thing. Uh, but all those co complexities and caveats aside, if this approach is correct, if the attention schema theory is correct, and, you know, it's my current favorite theory, but I am willing, you know, I'm a scientist. I don't know what will happen in the future, what evidence will come out for or against it. But if it's correct, then things that have attention, things that can control their own attention, things that have a rich model of their own attention to help control it. And especially things that can model the attention states of others. All of those go together and all of those are the basis of our consciousness. And there are plenty of animals that have all of those components, right? So we're talking most mammals and probably a lot, a lot, if not most birds, have these kinds of, of capabilities. And so if we're right, then all these animals have the basics of what we're calling uh, consciousness. So so, so if I'm understanding that correctly, does that mean that there's no one set path for developing an intention schema? It's that there, there could be lots of different physiological paths that, that could get there? There could be. So... Uh, I'm very curious, for, as many people are, about octopuses. So octopuses are great because, um, first of all, they're mollusks. They're like they're they're more closely related to a garden snail than they are to a, a person, right? And they represent, as far as I know, the most distant point on the evolutionary tree to humans that developed a very high level of intelligence, right? 
And so if you want to go and find your alien intelligence, like on Star Trek or something, there it is. It's already there. It's in the ocean. It's an octopus. Um, uh, so its brain, its nervous system, is totally separate active of, um, or a separate uh, a path of evolution. And yet, what's similar? Octopuses are visual predators. Like they have big eyes. They see the world around them. Um, and they have to have really good visual attention to hone in on particular parts of the environment that are important in their um, hunting and their behavior and to filter out stuff that isn't as important. And so these creatures need attention. They need control over their own attention. You can't have that control unless you have a good model of the thing you're controlling. So I'm guessing they have an excellent model of their own attention. Uh, and I don't know anything about octopus social intelligence. I think that's not well studied. So there's a perfectly reasonable possibility that on a totally different evolutionary path, because of very similar uh, constraints, very similar solutions were found. Right. The, the colloquial confusion between consciousness and, and intelligence or, or uh, emotions or metacognition or any of those things is, is a real problem. Um, you know, I, I like the, the, the container analogy that you use to, uh, sorry, I'll let you. No, go on. Yeah. The container analogy. Uh, you, 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 you remind me of which, which analogy, just to make sure I have the one you're thinking of. No, I was just going to say the, 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 sorry, it's not container. I meant bucket where you say that, that uh, we often think of the mind as all these different things, all these different components. Uh, the intelligence, emotion, so on and so forth, uh, that that are in a bucket. And consciousness is not the contents of the bucket, but it's the bucket itself. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I think, uh, so just to re refresh uh, for your viewers, uh, yeah, if you, if you think of the conscious mind as a bucket with stuff in it, like you're conscious of uh, what, you're, you're conscious of the world around you, you're conscious of the sights of, people around you, you're conscious of the feel of your clothes, conscious of your emotion at the moment, or, or maybe of a memory that you're recalling from yesterday, whatever it is, you're conscious of all these different things, decision-making and, and so on and so on. Uh, those are items in the bucket. Those are the things you're conscious of. But the question of consciousness is how do you get to be conscious of them and what does that even mean? In other words, what is the bucket, right? And people confuse the contents of the bucket with the bucket itself. And so uh, what really interests me is, is that bucket, what does it mean to, what is the bucket made out of? How does it hold stuff? How do things get in it and come out of it? And so often I have people who would ask me things like, well, you have a theory of consciousness, but how does, does it explain um, how I make decisions? Well, no. <laughs> uh, does it explain how I um, visually process the world? Well, no. Uh, does it explain um, emotion? Well, no. Uh, you know, it doesn't explain any of the specific items that can be sometimes in the bucket or sometimes not in the bucket. It's it's a different thing. It's the bucket material itself that I'm that I'm trying to get at. Right, and that might solve some of the gradient stuff that goes on in in things like IIT, where when we're thinking about what goes into the bucket, the the richness of the experience doesn't matter. You can have really rich stuff go in the bucket, or or really de de devoid stuff go in the bucket. It's that that's not relevant to to consciousness itself. When we're thinking about consciousness, we're thinking about the bucket itself. And you either have the bucket or you don't. Right. Sure. 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 
up. So if this theory is right, if attention schema theory is right, then there is attention. And in a sense, attention is the bucket. Thing you're attending to things or you're not. Uh, and actually, you can attend a little bit or more. So attention does have some something of a gradient to it. And then there's the model of attention, which gives us our intuitive understanding, our sort of internal intuitive understanding of what it means for things to be in that bucket, right? So in a sense, you can have something of a gradient, like the bucket has mushy walls, so to speak, because uh, you can be attending a lot to something or only attending a little bit. Uh, you can be attending 90% to this and 10% to that. Uh, so you do you do have gradients in attention. Um, and therefore, you can also have gradients in this, um, you know, awareness, this model of attention, right? So gradients are possible. Uh, but we're still not talking about the, the um, contents of the experience. We're still not talking about the color itself or the texture itself or the, you know, the pain of the pin poking you. We're not talking about the specific experience itself. We're talking about the, the, the state of the system that's processing the experience. Uh, on that point, is it possible to have attention without awareness? Or, um, so, so can you imagine something developing attention but not developing an attention schema? Yes. And we know that's true. So there's oodles and oodles of studies, including many from our own lab, uh, and they date back long before us, of how you can have um, objectively measurable attention uh, when people are w without the consciousness part. So uh, to, to give the simplest example, um, a stimulus, like a visual stimulus pops up on the screen, um, but it's so brief, you're not aware of it. You're just like, I didn't see anything. And yet one can show that your visual attention got snagged and pulled to that spot. Uh, and then you're better at detecting a second thing that appears at that spot right afterward, right? So you can show there's attention affected and pulled to something that you're totally unconscious of. Uh, and that can happen. It happens at the edge of the system with really dim stimuli or really brief stimuli where things aren't quite working right. Uh, and it is possible. It's totally possible to have to separate attention and um and the mo model of it, so to speak. Yeah, right. And of course, cases of mismatch are always possible between the attention and the schematic representation. Right. Yeah. So exactly. So those mismatches occur. Uh, I, and the 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 way I think about it is much like like in movement control. You know, which is where I come from, and and thinking about the body schema. The, the reason why we know that we have a body schema is specifically because of mismatches between the actual arm and the body schema of the arm, right? Nobody would have even known except for illusions and strange things like your arm gets amputated, but you still have your body schema of the arm intact and you have a phantom limb. Um, or your arm is really over here, but your body schema is telling you it's over here. So those mismatches tell us that the brain has a model of the arm, and the model is pretty good, but not absolutely perfect. That's how models work. So, so we talked about animal consciousness, but but what about infant consciousness? Um, do you think there's a developmental component to consciousness? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a super good question. That's super interesting to me. Uh, and I've certainly thought about that a lot. 
Uh, we haven't done any developmental studies. I would love to. It's very hard to study babies, so experimentally. Um, as I understand it, infants show pretty good attention from the start. Um, it may not be. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they, they show um, an ability to orient visually, at least. And they show uh, what's called preferential viewing. So certain objects are just um, much more um, interesting. They grab their attention more, so they, they look at them more often. It's one of the primary tools that's used in, in infant research. And so these kinds of things lead me to suspect that whatever they have, the system is there already. I don't know if it's fine-tuned, um, but the basic components of it must must be there already. I, I think infants also have, a uh, from the very start, uh, um, a particular interest in other people's eyes and where other people are looking. And so it suggests they also have the social component, at least at some level, the ability to model the attention of others. So I, I suspect human infants have a lot of these mechanisms at some level early on, and I presume it um, grows in sophistication through through development. Right. That's always the challenge with, with studying infants and, and, and animals to some extent. Yeah, very, yeah it's very challenging with um, human infants. Right, right. Uh, also, I apologize if I'm using the word consciousness where I should be using the word attention or attention schema. Um, yeah, it's just the terminology takes some time. Oh, it's, it's you know, it is, it's fine. I, I do that too, right? <laughs> In my writing, I, I uh, that's the whole point is to try to understand what this consciousness stuff is. Right. So, so we talked about uh, IIT earlier, but but what about some of the other big consciousness theories? So, so global workspace theory. Um, what, do, what do you make of global workspace theory, and how does it fit with with your way of looking at this? So, global workspace theory, uh, there there's a lot of it that I really like, because it, it's basically, in a sense, it's a theory of attention. Right. I'm a, a, um, there's different ways to describe it, but one way is that attention mechanisms boost signals in the brain. And those signals get boosted, boosted, and finally they're strong enough to enter what's called the global workspace, where they reach a state of such signal strength or, you know, whatever the signal is, the fi firing rate of neurons or whatever the, the going uh, currency is. Uh, they reach such a state that they can now, uh, in some accounts, influence a central network in the brain, oh, a parietofrontal network. And from there, they can influence lots of different output systems. So now that signal, let's say it's the apple you're looking at, has um, uh, attracted attention and built and built and built up enough a signal strength that now the visual um, uh, apple representation in your brain can influence things like your speech and your decision-making and your uh, movement control and your memory. And so now other systems around the brain can access that information because it's in this uh, central global um, workspace, which is you know very aptly named, the global workspace. And that part of it seems uh, a pretty good description to me. That's a very nice description of how attention enhances signal strength and then uh, um, the, you know, the stimulus can have a more global uh, impact around the brain. There's a second part to the global workspace theory, which says, therefore, when it gets into the global workspace, that's how 
that's the condition under which the magic experience emerges out of it, right? And that's the part that's no longer a theory. That's the part that's just magicalism. Like, here are the conditions. This is the alchemy. You put in the newt eye and the frog tongue, and you mix it all up and heat it, and then poof, the magic experienceness emerges out of it, right? And so, uh, I I always think that you take global workspace theory and you take attention schema theory and you put them together and you get uh, something that works together, right? Because the attention schema theory essentially says, well, you need an extra step. You need something in the brain that builds a model, a descriptive model of what it means for the apple to be in the global workspace. And then that descriptive model is what uh, informs people's beliefs that they're conscious of the apple. Right, so you need this extra step uh, in there, and um, and so those two theories work really well together. But I think without the attention schema theory, the the global workspace theory, like so many other theories, at the final step in the last analysis, becomes a magicalist theory. Right, gets right there. Okay, well, what what about the higher order thought theories? Right, uh, I uh, I think those are harder to pin down. So there's different versions of them and different views of them. Um, there are ways to think about the higher order thought theory um, that make the attention schema theory an example of a higher order thought theory. So the higher order thought theory essentially says, uh, uh, so a higher order thought is a thought about a thought. You know, a thought about a process, cognition about cognition. So not just you're looking at an apple and seeing an apple, but you also have the thought, I am processing that apple. I am seeing that apple, right? So it's this um, thought about the process of seeing or a thought about the process of remembering or whatever it is, that would be the higher order thought. And the attention schema theory is about a model being built to represent another um, process in the brain, attention. So the brain does attention, but then the brain builds a model of its own attention. And so in this sense, it is kind of a higher order thought theory. Um, but most people I find who talk about the higher order thought theory, and it really is not a theory, it's many theories, as many versions of it. Uh, most people who talk about that cluster of theories tend to um, cluster around the idea that if you build higher, if your brain builds a higher order thought of something, then it causes the feeling of experience to emerge out of that. In other words, it becomes magicalism again, right? And so there really is no explanation anymore for what the, you know, what is the magical thing? What is the feeling? How, how, why would it come out of, of that? What, what, you know, what's, what's the logic of that? And then having come out, why do you say that you have it? How does it uh, specifically impact your neurons and your speech machinery and so on? Like it, it lacks an explanation. And so what AST does basically is, is, is it is bypasses that. So it's, it's, it takes the, the magicalism loop out of the higher order thought. So um, for me, yeah, there's a lot of interest in higher order thought theories. But as I hear most people talk about them, they still kind of run afoul of the same kind of um, magicalism at their heart. Right. I think the dividing line is 
is relational versus representational theories. So th this is Richard Brown. He was he was just on here earlier. The taxonomy, but 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 essentially um, representational theories that that pose a a a, a representation. Then it's the higher order version of the representation that's needed to be conscious. Whereas relational ones don't require representation; they just require some sort of awareness relation or something. Um, is 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 either one uh, closer to to AST? Well, I think the key is if you say you have a subjective experience, then it is logically necessarily true that somewhere in your brain is a representation of the fact of what 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 a, a subjective experience is and it's telling you it's describing to you that you have that subjective experience uh, and you need that representation otherwise you wouldn't be saying it right so um if you know like the guy with the squirrel who said he had a squirrel in his brain uh you could say oh if you have a higher order thought about the apple then a squirrel appears in your brain that's how the squirrel gets in your brain. And what I'm saying is, in order for the guy to say he has a squirrel in his brain, his brain must have constructed a chunk of information, a model that's describing a squirrel in his brain. Otherwise, he wouldn't say that. Like, that's logically necessarily true. There has to be a representation of squirrel in brain for him to believe he has a squirrel in his brain. Because if you didn't have that representation, you wouldn't even know what that is. He wouldn't believe that. Uh, and so that's basically what this AST description is attention schema theory description is of of um, of consciousness. It's not so much that any higher order representation just gives you the conscious feeling. It's to say you have a conscious feeling, you must have a representation in your brain that describes you having a conscious feeling. Like without that, you got nothing. And so that's um, yeah, that that's where I I see similarities. I I have a lot of empathy for certain aspects of the of the um uh a higher order thought theory um and i think there's a lot of connections that i find fascinating uh, but some versions of it i think miss miss the point right fair enough uh sort sort of relatedly but but what do you make of the embodied cognition folks of the 4ea uh, i feel like there's a range of views a range of notions of what that even means embodied cognition um I think I'm very sympathetic to the underlying concept of embodied cognition, that cognition is not this really explicit, uh, almost like a linear computer code. <laughs> it's it's sort of um, uh, distributed in, in a way. Um, and coming from the motor system, I'm particularly sympathetic to the idea of some, some of the ideas of embodied cognition. So one of the things that you realize when you study motor control, when you move your arm, for example, there's a lot of computations that go on in there. Uh, but uh, what is the source of information? What's doing the computations is partly neurons, but it's also partly the muscles in your arm and the way they interact with your environment that are literally doing computations in a physical sense and then sending sensory information back into the system to inform the system so the system can then send signals back out to control the arm and um and so the uh the loop of motor control involves the arm the muscles the bones the entire environment as part of the information processing loop uh and that's 
kind of that's in the spirit of some of this uh, embodied cognition um, thinking. Uh, so I, I, I am somewhat sympathetic to that. Um, I, I do think more cognitive processes like attention or models of attention are probably less dependent on that kind of um, in, in embodiment. Right. Fair enough. It's true that computations can be implemented in, in anything, but then some things do do seem like they need good old fashioned yeah. neural computation. So, so I know, I know you hinted to this earlier, but but machine consciousness, uh, this has been the big thing lately. But um, do you think then that according to AST, can we possibly build machines that can also be conscious? Yes. I think we can. I think there's nothing to stop that. There's nothing in the way. I think it's going to happen if it hasn't already happened. Uh, I think that uh, if you think of consciousness as a thing that you either have or don't, it's like, you know, uh, essentially, if you think of it in that traditional magicalist way, it gets very hard to tell. Um, but uh, when you think of the sort of suite of um, abilities or processes, that underlie our consciousness and then you see how they may exist perhaps in simpler form uh, in other systems then you start seeing this sort of slidey gradient um, it's almost like when people talk about tool use you know people are tool users and then they discover chimps are tool users and then it turns out otters are and then it turns out ants use tools and all kinds of creatures use tools at some level in some way and it gets very hard to just draw a line in and say everything before this, no tools, everything after this, tools. Yeah. I think consciousness is going to work the same way. Like the, the basic components can be there. Uh, and then it gets very hard to tell what the right line to draw in to say, no, we'll call these conscious and these not. And so I think computer systems have already been built that have some of these components, right? Computer systems have been built with attention, with good control over their attention, um, and with uh, models of their own attention, uh, and so on. Um, uh, so something like the really sophisticated um, large language models that are out there now, like ChatGPT, this is super interesting to me. Uh, I don't know what I I don't know what's in there. Um, I think <laughs> nobody does. I mean, that's in a sense, the point of having these deep learning neural network models is that uh, you train them, uh, but you don't know on the inside of the black box what the training did. All you know is how it behaves. Um, but ChatGPT is very good at social interaction and it has, appears to have some kind of theory of mind to understand other people and, and make inferences about uh, what other people might be thinking. And so that's very intriguing to me. I think that kind of system also has some of these components. Uh, whether we want to say it, I mean, we don't want to say it has human-like consciousness, uh, but maybe it will soon. Uh, but it has some of these components. So where do you draw the line in? I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to study that. But at some point, yes, um, machines relatively soon will have the stuff that we think of. It will it will think it is conscious in the same way that we think we are. And it will attribute consciousness to others in the same way that we attribute consciousness to others. Um, 
Yeah, they think I think like you say, the important things is the important thing is not to 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 conflate it with those human things, not to require, not to stipulate that it needs to have the emotions and, and all those things for us to understand it as being conscious. Right. So we don't know what its self model is. Um but I think it can probably attribute some of the same. So when I, when I look at you and I attribute consciousness to you, uh, wh what am I doing? I'm saying, well, you're aware of me. You're aware of a particular thought, uh, but you're not aware of, I don't know, something else. You're not aware of what you can't see behind my computer, uh, but you're aware. You know, I can, I can understand what must be in your the purview of your conscious mind and what might not be. And so that suggests I have some comprehension of what a conscious mind is, and I can attribute that to you, right? And ChatGPT has that ability. So it has a remarkable ability to talk to other people and figure out what is likely to be in that person's mind or, or not in that in that person's mind. And that that's very intriguing to me, how how much it how, how at the high level at which it performs. This might be a trivial question, but do do you think we're going to build a conscious machine uh, on purpose intentionally, or or do you think we're just going to build build stuff and at 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 some point, some scale, it'll it'll get there? Uh, I don't think it's a matter of scale, and I think we are building them intentionally, although maybe people don't realize that's that what they're trying to build is the same thing as a conscious mind, right? They want machines that understand people. Uh, and as soon as you build a machine that understands people, that can interact with people, that understands what someone else's mind is, there you have a machine that understands what consciousness is, at least the same way I understand your consciousness. The machine understands someone else's consciousness. Uh, and that's that's for um, social you know, user interface. Like People are trying to do that. It's no accident. Uh, how, how the machine understands itself is more tricky right now but to build machines that are more socially competent i think they need models of themselves as well to be able to interact well with other people so i think it's it's at people are intentionally driving in that direction it's not just build a more complicated and then the magic-y thing comes out of it I think is specifically people are trying to do that. Right. Sorry, I misspoke earlier. I didn't mean to to imply that scalable equal consciousness. Um, but 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 do you think there? Do you think there's some sort of computational advantage to having a a, a conscious AI system, and thereby that provides a, a design incentive to people who are building these systems? Yeah. If we're right, yes, because that's the whole point, right? This this mechanism evolved. There's two huge advantages to it, probably others, but one is uh, it it allows you to control your own attention better. Uh, so it follows the what's sometimes considered the fundamental principle of, of control uh, engineering, which is if you want to control something, have a model of it. So if you want to control your own attention, have a model of it, right? And so it would be hugely beneficial to any machine that has attention uh, that is able to deploy its uh, computational resources to be more efficient by focusing on this limited set of items or that limited set. And to be able to control that attention, it would be enormously advantageous for it to have a, a good model of its own attention, right? So right off the bat, huge advantage. And second, if you want machines to interact and <clears throat> interface with people, again, huge advantage 
to being able to attribute, to model the attention of others, not just your own attention, but of others. So it's the same reasons why uh, these kinds of things would have evolved um, in animals and ultimately in us would make them enormously uh, useful for, um, you know, for, for machine, for machine learning. Right. How, how do you feel about this? So are you, are you excited about the prospect? Are you, um, sorry, I know this way off into speculation, but. Yeah, yeah. No, this is just um, a very interesting question. I don't know. Uh, I think consciousness is less than what most people in, in the general public think it is. Right, because most people think, "Oh my God, if it's conscious, that means suddenly it can become autonomous." Well, but they already are, you know. Or, "Oh my God, it can suddenly make decisions on its own." Uh, they already do, um, uh, and so on. Right? They already have all those capacities. Or, or, or people think, "Oh my God, if it's conscious, that means it can remember things from its past." I mean, come on, computers have had memory forever. Uh, so, what is it that the consciousness piece adds? Uh, that's what AST addresses. It's really important, but it's really specific. It's not giving it the ability to be autonomous and to make decisions and so on and so on. It's giving it something else. It's giving it a, a good model of what attention is. And that model is really useful for this specific reason and that specific reason and so on. So attention, uh, a, a consciousness in that sense, I think, is not the gigantic, huge, scary thing that uh, to give a machine that most people in the general public would think. It's kind of an incremental advance. I mean, it's a huge advance in some ways, but it's also in, uh, uh, an incremental advance to give them that capacity. So I, in that sense, I'm less scared of it. Um, I, I think large language models already have some degree of modeling other people's attention. I think that's probably there. Um, and I think that, to me, the scariest thing People are scared to death of AI right now. Uh, I think a lot of that is hype. And a lot of that is because you get a lot of attention um, by beating on that drum. But um, to me, the scariest thing about AI is that it's not what AI will do to us. It's what uh, really um, uh, well-moneyed people who can buy the resources can do with it. Uh, because AI already is at the heart of shaping the opinions of people in the public. Like AI algorithms are at the root of huge political shifts in opinion all over the world. Uh, and if you have the money and resources to buy it, then you, you can influence uh, public opinion and political opinion in, in ways that can be incredibly damaging. So that's what scares me about it. Right. I, th I think it was, I forget who, but I think it was... Yosha Benjo recently, who said, um, uh, I may be wrong about this, so sorry if I am, but but the idea that the real threat of AI right now is the misinformation it can generate and how that can be exacerbated and used against us. Yeah, totally. And um, it's not, it's in misinformation and it's knowing uh, how to how to manipulate people's buttons, right? So uh, all you need to do is train a giant neural network on how to pump out the right pieces of information in order to get the response it wants from a shift in public opinion. Like it can see the relationship between those two. And so you train it to give you the effect you want. And suddenly you're pushing, um, uh, you know, 
political opinion polls by uh, two, three, five percentage points, and it becomes enough to change the politics of the world. Right, right. This, this I think, is really, really important for people to understand that it's not, it's not about dystopian future imagery. Um, it, it's, it's, it's just power structures. It's, it's all about how these tools will be manipulated politically. Yeah. Yep. It's people in the end. <laughs> It's not. It's not the evil AI. It's the evil people. <laughs> That's the problem. Right, right, right. It's the. It's the thing that we've been. We've been hopefully repeating over and over again, uh, that that consciousness is not the same thing as emotions or, or all these other humans and the human things. These are still human problems. So. That's right. Yeah. Do you find uh, conscious machines to be posing an, an ethical question? Um, so is is the fact of a machine being conscious? Uh, a reason for us to treat it ethically is consciousness some sort of dividing line between what to, how we should ethically act towards something or, or not. I think it's 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 tricky, right? So, um, one ethical consideration that I'm not as compelled by is, let's say you build a conscious machine, is it right to turn it off? Is it right to damage it? Is it right to kill it? Or a machine, right? Um, but the problem for me is that the reason why people don't want to die is not because we're conscious. It's because we built with certain emotional machinery inside of us. And consciousness may interact with that, right? But if you build a machine that doesn't have emotionality, it could still have a conscious experience, uh, right? It could still have these attention mechanisms and attention schemas, and, and it could still think like we do. I have a subjective experience of the world. But that doesn't necessarily mean the machine wants to be alive and is scared of dying and suffers and all these other emotional components, right? You would have to build that into it. So you build a machine that has those kinds of human-like emotions, or let's say mammalian-type emotions, um, uh, so that it's scared of dying. Then we have a conversation about the ethics of um, treatment and, and harm and, and um, you know, life and death of the machines. Like, then it starts to make sense to me. But I think what happens is, again, people inflate consciousness into something larger than it really is. And so they, they, they like to think, oh, if it's conscious, then it has all these other components as well. And now we have to treat it um, morally or, or ethically. And I'm not quite as compelled by that argument yet. I mean, we may come to that, but yeah. Is, is this a question that comes up you know, from a design perspective, you imagine, that just like building a machine that might have consciousness provides a computational advantage, would there be an advantage found in, in building a system that, that has the capacity to display emotion and, and perhaps even feel emotion? That's even a sensible question. Yeah. Uh, I think that... So first of all, is it even possible? I think yes, ultimately. But right now, almost nothing is known at a granular level about how emotion is represented in the brain, right? Some of the basic circuits are known. Uh, so sometimes people distinguish between emotion and feeling, and emotion is in these very basic brainstem circuits that we're not necessarily even aware of. And feeling is, you know, when it that those kinds of signals interface with our cerebral cortex and then it enters into what we call our, our consciousness and so on. So, uh, but none of that is understood, I think, at a detail that can anyone can even begin to approach building, right? So I think we're a long way from 
addressing that question. Uh, uh, but but is it possible to build that stuff? Ultimately, eventually, yes. And then we have um, basically uh, brains, artificial brains that are thinking and feeling like we are. And now you have to worry. You know, nobody wants to see um, C-3PO tortured and killed because we all love him. Uh, but we, we reach a point where suddenly that becomes um, culturally relevant for uh, to solve. Right, right. We, we've been taking the term emotion for granted so far in this conversation. And, and we, we, we don't know a lot about it. Like, it seems that we know bits and pieces to affect on. But, uh, but the cognitive, high-order, high-level cognitive representation of emotions is, is, is very poorly understood. It still feels a bit murky. Right, exactly. It's very, very, yeah, it's very murky. So we know a lot about vision, for example. And so we can start to build machines that process the visual world a lot like people do. But emotion, very little in comparison, very little. Yeah. So there, there is another side to the ethics of AI, which I find interesting. And it basically has to do with the fact that regardless of whether you think it has consciousness or not, people are going to treat it that way. People are going to attribute consciousness to machines and already do in many, in many instances. And so how people treat machines impacts how people treat other people. And so you have, uh, that's something that it seems to me is already here right now and at uh, ethical, um, question for us. And, and that can be on, on both, it could be on the good side and the bad side. So there's people, some of the work we're doing in the lab involves um, companion chatbots uh, where people interact with a chatbot and they get to know it and they treat it like a friend and it's very soothing and it helps them get through their day and it actually helps with mental health and it can improve the way people interact with other people, with friends and family. It can have a beneficial effect on social um, uh, health and mental health in general. That's on the one side. On the other side, you can also imagine that uh, how people interact with AI, if they think it's conscious, if it sort of uh, tunes up their social circuits and then they use the, that same tuning on other people, now you can also see a downside to it. Do, um, do people you know, get very brutal toward other people because they devalued the AI? And they got used to treating intelligent agents in a devalued way, right? So, right. Is, is this a problem that we should be attacking from a design perspective? But be, should people just anticipate how people are going to treat these machines because of how human-like they appear? And then maybe we should artificially limit how human-like they appear? Yeah. I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know how... From a design point of view, I don't know how to address that. But it is certainly true that the more human-like the AI is, the more likely people are to think of it as a conscious agent. Uh, and, you know, people do already all over the world. People interact with the AI. And even, even people who say, well, I know it's not conscious, but I sort of feel like it is. That's enough. That's enough to start influencing their um, social behavior and to leak into how they interact with other people. So, um, yeah, so you, from a design perspective, you want, might just want to be really careful that social AI is built in a way that's really nice to people and doesn't encourage uh, bad behavior. This is a very speculative question, and, and, and I know we just talked about the work on emotions being, being murky, but um, there's, there's some work on the relevance of embodiment in emotions again. 
Um, and relatedly, do you find that cybernetic AI systems, AI systems that use use advantage of cybernetics, because they might be be taking advantage of those embodiment principles, you might then you might then think that those systems might might be closer or more closely resemble human emotions. Uh, there are a lot of theories about emotions that involve essentially embodiment. That's true. Uh, um, some of the most sort of classical theories of emotion are that they're uh, rooted in physiological feelings, like sensations in your body, like in your gut, um, or your heartbeat, or you know, or your skin prickling, and that these are these autonomic nervous system uh, responses in the body then get registered in the brain and then interpreted. And the, what we call emotion is this layer of interpretation on top of that. And if that's true, which actually sounds plausible to me, then you will never have really plausible human-like emotion unless you build a body for the AI. And the body has, uh, whether it's a real physical body or an elaborately simulated body, uh, one, one or the other, until you build a body that has many of these same kind of physiological um functions and feedback, uh, um, sensory feedback built into them. Uh, that sounds plausible to me if, if one were to try to build, um, try to build emotionality into a machine. Uh, I mean, right now, large language models sometimes, uh, are taught or trained to have emotion type responses. Um, but I don't know what that really means. Uh, you know, like a human sociopath without any real emotion can mimic certain kinds of emotional states in conversations. Uh, and actually, I do worry that we're basically just building giant sociopathic uh, AIs. What do you what do you make of the whole brain uploading stuff, the consciousness uploading stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. I have written about it before. Uh, sometimes... People ask me whether that's possible. I think oh, it is. Of course it is. Um, when will it happen? Not for a long time. Like there, there, there are people who think it's around the corner. Uh, I'm, I, I no, it's not. Uh, oh, but eventually, yeah. Um, so I'm reminded. So the what, what is the problem there? The problem is, oh, so the brain's made up of. First of all, we don't really know what the all the processing elements of the brain are. Like we have an hypothesis that is neurons doing everything, but the neurons are outnumbered 10 to one by glia cells, and we're not quite sure what they're doing. Uh, and then there's all kinds of other possibilities, right? So there could be mechanism in there that's not fully understood. Uh, but let's pretend for the moment that it's just the neurons. It's just the 86 billion neurons in the brain that's doing everything, right? So now you can say, well, okay, uh, can we build a, a neuron that's like good enough simulation of a human brain neuron yes can we build a network of 86 billion of them uh yes actually that's completely doable uh, so what's the hang-up the hang-up is how you get your particular pattern of connectivity into the machine like how do you copy your pattern onto the machine and so in a sense that problem comes down to a, a scanning technique at high enough resolution to capture all the connections in your brain and all the different kinds of neurons and because different kinds of different temporal dynamics and uh and so on and so on all the different neurotransmitters and some of them are local and some of them are more like um 
you know, uh, uh, hormones that spread a little bit. Do you have the resolution to scan a person's brain and capture all of that such that you can then implement it in the already existing capability of, of, of artificial neural networks? So it's a scanning technology issue. Uh, and we are so far from that right now, technologically, it's ridiculous. Um, but I will say this, the problem reminds me of, um, gravity waves, right? Cause, uh, 1915, Einstein predicts gravity waves and he says, look, this is impossible. No one will ever measure them. It's totally 100% theoretical because the magnitude that you have to measure is something like thousands of times smaller than the nucleus of an atom. So it's fun to think about as a cool thing. It's science fiction. It's ridiculous. It'll never be measured, but what fun. Yay. Uh, a hundred years later, people figure out how to measure it. They have a machine capable of measuring gravity waves, right? So, uh, technology has a way of moving and, and, uh, and solving problems that people thought were just totally off the charts impossible. Uh, so the scanning the brain in sufficient detail, I don't see it right now, but could be a hundred years from now, there it is. And people are scanning their brains and then implementing them in neural networks. And, you know, all I'll say is, um, don't be, don't be an early adopter because you don't know what state you'll end up with what's your brains uploaded right like it, it may be principally possible just because it's it's all mechanistic it's all naturalist in the end um but but sometimes i think in popular media people people pose those to be equal levels of engineering challenges the the building a building a conscious machine and then taking a high resolution scan of the brain and implementing it in some i guess silicon based computer and they're really, really not. They're really, really different levels of engineering challenges. Yeah, that's right. So making a machine conscious is much easier and right on the threshold, in my in my opinion. And building it, taking your scan and implementing it is super easy. Like, we could do that now. But how do you get the scan? That's the hard part. Like, that is so far beyond any kind of current scanning uh, technology that it's not even... I can't even imagine what the technology would be um, that would that would do that at that kind of resolution. And then once you do it, you know, then you that you're basically it's a guess. You're saying, uh, well, I hope that it was just neurons we needed, and not the uh, ten times as many glia or whatever else is going on. Uh, so let's just see if it works and hope that the guy that we um, uploaded on the machine isn't in some kind of horrible agony or you know a, a psychotic state because we screwed up his brain. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't be the first one to try. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and there's also the question the 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 copy problem. The of when you're doing it, are you are you killing the original one or maybe not killing, but maybe killing. But but um, is there is there continuity between the copies? Do they do they branch? Yeah. Well, I think people find that hard to think about because it's never been done, right? And once it's done, I think. Uh, in some future, whatever it is, 500 years, 100 years from now, whenever they figure it out, people will get very used to thinking about it. It'll all be very automatic and, and simple. Uh, but it seems to me that if the scanner does not kill you, then all you've done is branched. Now there's two of you 
one's uh, Im embedded in, in um, an artificial system and one's biological. And now you got two with with a shared, um, it's like a Y. The stock of the Y is your um, childhood and your upbringing. And, and then the Y branches at the point that the, um, the scan happens. And so the scanned one thinks it's you. It's like, yeah, I'm... So, uh, that's why I, I have those memories. I remember going into the scanner. I remember lying down, and now here I am. It worked. It's great. Ha ha! I'm gonna live forever, you know. And the other one, the biological one, is like, well, that didn't work because I'm still biological. I'm still gonna, you know, I I'm vulnerable. I will die eventually. So I guess that wasn't the ticket to immortality after all. So, yeah, the the ethics of that I can't really imagine right now. Yeah, very very weird, very loopy.